What do you say? Hi everyone and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. This is the second episode and I, uh, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, I know this is a brand new podcast and you're giving it a shot and that's always a good thing. Before we get on to uh, the podcast today, I wanna go through a little bit of housekeeping. Um, first of all, thanks for all the great feedback. Um, I got some fantastic emails with people suggesting guests and some feedback about how I can improve the, the, the podcast, and that's great. Keep it coming. You can send that over to conversations at jonobacon.com. The other thing as well is that the podcast um, subscriptions are now up. So if you want to listen to the show and subscribe to it in iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, you can go to johnobacon.com slash conversations where you can find those links and you can obviously search inside of those services and hopefully find it there. If you don't find it there, then email your local representative and complain. Um, anyway, I'm really thrilled to have on the podcast today, I think a friend of everybody, Kate Drain. How are you doing, Kate? I'm doing awesome. How are you, John? <laughs> Good. So... We first met when, uh, when I was working at Canonical and we launched the Ubuntu Edge. Um, and I want to go through the rap sheet with your experience, but then like kind of dig into a little bit how you started in this, because there's a, there's a, there's a theme through this. So you were Indiegogo. Um, you uh, came in as the engagement lead for small business and community. And then you were kind of the head honcho, at least in my mind, for hardware-related <laughs> projects uh, design and tech categories. Um, and then you were senior director of out, uh, of outreach for design tech and hardware. Um, we worked together on a couple of campaigns, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, and now you're at TechStars, and you are senior network engagement manager. And the one thread that I've noticed through this is this is all about innovation and letting all, you know, ships float essentially. Um, and crowdfunding is obviously one piece of that, but with Techstars, for those people who are unfamiliar with this, this is a seed accelerator. Is that Boulder? Is that right? Uh, we have 45 programs worldwide. Oh, wow. Okay. But it so is based in Boulder, correct? Out of everywhere then. Okay. Uh, with a combined market cap of 18.2 billion. That's a lot of billions, which we like. We like lots of billions. Um, uh, Bench, DigitalOcean, SendGrid, Plated are some examples of some of these, these companies. Um, and less than 1% of uh, applicants get accepted is what I read on the internet, which is pretty interesting. Um, so again, I'd like to get into that in a little bit, but how did you get into this? Because there is this thread you said just before we started recording that the universe kind of has a way. Dig into that a little bit. So, I, um, Thank you first off. I'm so excited that you asked me to be on the show. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm stoked. And so to back up to how I, I even kind of got here, I... I, when I when I first came into being a professional, I was working at a law firm as a recruiter in Chicago, and yeah. when I was there, I like I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in a small town two hours west of Chicago called oh. Rock Falls, Illinois. I used to sell corn every summer for eight summers. It sounds like a kid <laughs> rock video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was very exciting. It was it was a great first job. Mm. Um, and when I got to Foley and Lardner, which was the firm I was working at as a recruiter, I knew that I had, I, I always wanted to make things work. Like I, was, I would consider myself an intrapreneur at that point. Mm. I started our recycling program with the, with the company and, um, but I didn't, 
know how to actually start a business. It was right. something that was very overwhelming. Very, I knew I had a, a desire to do it, but I just was too scared to do it. Right. And um, in the fall of 2008, I w- went to a grad school fair because, again, I was like, I really, I, I want to learn more about business. Mm, I, I was mm. interested in it. I went to this grad school friend fair to meet a friend, and. Uh, she wasn't ready yet. And so I, I have this pull towards people who are sitting by themselves. Like I just can't stand to see people sitting by themselves. I know. You kind of feel bad, don't you? you Yeah. yeah. So I I went to talk to her and, uh, she was from Presidio Graduate School here in San Francisco. And when she told me about the program where I could get my MBA and it's a, it's a hybrid program where I studied two days in person in San Francisco, and then I would fly back to Chicago and spend the rest of my time so I could keep my full-time job right, right. and get my MBA. I was like, this is amazing. I get to impact my local community, but go to one of the most beautiful places in the world yeah, yeah. once a month. This is incredible. So then 2009 happened. Um, that we weren't recruiting lawyers because the market crashed. So and what happens to a recruiter? In <laughs> yeah, uh, we get we get laid off. And but luckily, I had grad school, and so I, I ended up taking my severance, moving to San Francisco. Um, and when I was in grad school, I worked with an incredible group for our capstone project. I worked with an incredible group of my my classmates on a project called the Canvan, which is a mobile beer canning service for craft breweries here in the Bay Area. Hmm. And so this is 2011. We had this idea. And through our capstone class, we decided that it was it was a good idea to turn into a full blown business. And at that point, again, it's it's we're still learning how to run a business. And so we are like, how do you raise money for it? We know that we need to buy our first canning line, a micro canning line. It costs around $250,000. Okay. And so we turned, we heard about this thing called crowdfunding. And so we went to Indiegogo, which one of my friends had used for her own small business. And through that campaign in 2011, we ended up raising half of our goal, but we got to keep which we got to keep that five thousand dollars right but through the campaign we also were exposed on the platform and we got our through that through that exposure we got into fast company and four months before we were operational and got a feature story in fast company which is this is kind of like the thing that i think a lot of people don't get about crowdfund right is that it's such a marketing thing. Yes. A lot of people think that it's about capital, but it really isn't, right? So, exactly. And, well, it can be, but it's it's not just the only thing. Exactly. And, and it's the exposure, and it's the getting people who are the right people, the right mechanism to be able to review what you're working on. So to build on that, uh, our largest investor, angel investor, ended up seeing the campaign through the platform, and she actually closed the round, like closed the, the need uh, for us. Okay. And... So then we were able to to buy our canning line, start canning in January of 2012. And um, it, was, it was incredible, just that exposure, that ability to be able to tell your story in a meaningful way right. and to be able to, to, to make that dream a reality with the help of other people who are also passionate about what you're building. Yeah. And so then fast forward... Uh, I, had, I said that I would give a year of, of sweat equity to the can van. It was time for me to move to Chicago, move back to Chicago after living in San Francisco for three years. And I met with somebody who I knew through our Indiegogo campaign who was from Chicago. 
asked her about jobs, she's like, actually, you sound perfect for a job at Indiegogo, um, which is how I ended up getting hired. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that you'd used Indiegogo before you went there. That's kind of neat. Yeah. When did Indiegogo start? So Indiegogo launched in 2000. I'm like, man, it's been a bit. Um, 2010? Right, right. 2011? It was, I know it was up and running during also the financial downturn. Right. Um, what, but, was the, what was the impact of that, do you know? Like, because I imagine that crowdfunding, I can see it going both ways in terms of how it would be impacted through a financial downturn. But on one hand, it, it, you could say um, this is a lean way for people to be able to innovate. But on the other hand, if people haven't got, if people are struggling to, to pay their bills, they're probably not going to be throwing $50 down for, you know, some kind of, you know, self-playing dog toy or something like that. And that's so. a big, like when you hear the story of Indiegogo, Slava Rubin, the founder, right. uh, he tells the story of how he was, re- he was rejected by 90 plus investors and he calls those the lean years because his mom would talk to him about how skinny he was when he came home. Oh, wow. Like <laughs> literally lean years. Literally This is lean. not a diet technique, right? No. <laughs> uh, and he, convincing people, especially through that downturn, to say, yes, people will... Because crowdfunding wasn't a term then. Like now it seems somewhat yeah. household name. But yeah. the first few years at Indiegogo really was a lot of educating the market that yeah. this, was, this was a tool that was going to help them right. um, and which was nice that I had my own personal experience that I could say we didn't even raise our full goal but it li- like look at the impact that it had oh, and the can van now is if we've been up in canning for seven years we have seven canning lines we've killed uh, we've filled over 10 million cans Holy. or wait a hundred thousand can one one yeah I think it's a hundred Hundred million? It's either oh, a yeah. lot, a lot, many millions of cans, <laughs> many millions of cans. I just think one one thing that I think is fascinating about this is it reminds me. There's kind of been three. When I think about uh, technology, there's been kind of three. Um, I guess you could say significant innovations that all sound all remind me of the same sort of thing. One is was open source, where this idea that people around the world can build code and everybody can contribute to it. And then you share, and it's the, the, the value of the network, the value of the community coming together, which obviously we're big fans of. Um, but then people would say, well, does that mean anybody can put code in this? And does that, what are the security implications? So people had to get their heads around um, that you can, you can harness the crowd in a way that is safe and is sustainable. And then, of course, with crowdfunding, the idea that, well, hang on, I'm going to put some money down on a thing and there's no guarantee that it's necessarily going to ship or it's even going to ship on time. And then the third thing to me is kind of what HackerOne are doing with the idea that you have a security team that's from the community and that these hackers are are focusing on improving the security of your product. These are like all things that make sense and I think work, but I can understand why people look at it and they're like, what? There's too much risk attached to this. How did Indiegogo about go about bridging that? Because I can imagine for a lot of lay people, this is just weird, right? Like, there's no guarantees with this. That you're, you're kind of rolling the dice in some ways, and everybody's got their own good and bad experiences with crowdfunding. How did you handle that when you were there? So with Indiegogo, what's interesting about their approach what was that Indiegogo set out to democratize access to capital and to eradicate gatekeepers, right. where 
it was it, you were in control of essentially of your destiny. It was yeah. your ability to be able to tell a story, connect, uh, build and connect with your uh, your community and tell that story in a way where it incites them to action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the question of security came up a lot from the sense of like, well, how do you like, what if scammers and whatever else? Yeah. What if someone just, I mean, I, I saw a lot of people around those times saying, well, what if they just take my money and run? It's kind of was the fear, right? Right. And what there was a few studies done. It was mostly out of it started in Australia about the amount of quote unquote fraud. So fraud being that somebody takes your money and they're just going to like run away with it was less than 1%. Right. And it's because for crowdfunding, in order to to really get the ball rolling and be able to be successful, you have to raise at least 30% of your goal in the Mm. first 48 hours. And typically those first funders are going to be like your mom or your restaurant. Friend right. or somebody who's been with you on that entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's a, a certain amount of social capital that you're lending to anything that you're putting out there. Uh. And because of that, you're like, well, are you going to screw over your mom? Like, no, you're going to have to go home to th- Thanksgiving and they're going to ask you, hey, whatever happened to my $100? Or that's a, that's a, I never thought about that. That's a good point because I guess if you literally are in the business of scamming and you put your your campaign on there and you don't bring in your friends and your mom and whatever else because you don't want to screw them over, it probably won't succeed anyway, right? So there's a certain amount of the problem solves itself to a degree, right? Unless you've got a really great product that people want and you're promising it and and then you don't ship it. But But probably somebody had to for a lot for so It's a lot of work though to do that, right? Exactly. Because (laughs) uh like for example Thinking about the campaigns that you've worked on, right. that there's a brand behind it, there's reputation behind it, yeah. and um, you may not be able to do whatever you said you're going to do, but people are are betting on you to say that they believe in you and that they believe in your ability to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. and that's what the I feel like crowdfunding. There's something magical about it for that reason, where it's the power of just believing in like everybody. We're gonna we're gonna to make it not as risky because we're going to distribute the risk yeah. among hundreds, thousands of people. Right. But we're at least believe in you and we can vote with our dollars and say, I believe in you. I believe in you if $50 worth. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. The one thing that always, the, the, you know, I've worked on a couple of crowdfunding campaigns. Uh, the Ubuntu they were very, Ed- very successful. They raised a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Ubuntu Edge is a fascinating one for people who are, who are listening to this who aren't familiar with this. So Ubuntu um, at one point had a whole devices strategy and, and Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Canonical and Ubuntu, had this big idea of like, why don't we produce this just killer smartphone? And this was, this was a while back. And July 22nd, 2012 is when it launched, or 2013 I, is when are, it launched, because it was my birthday. It was like the best uh, birthday I was gonna present. Say, it was like, man, this is amazing. I was going <laughs> to say that you're a consumer <laughs> professional remembering that. <laughs> Just that one. And uh, when I first talked to him about it, he, he was like, we, we need to raise 10 million, which was a lot of money for crowdfunding back then. I mean, it's a lot of money for crowdfunding today. And then it ultimately ballooned to, I think it was 32 million, something like that. And we raised 12.7, which was either a huge success or a huge failure, depending on how you look at it. I think it was a success, but whatever. But one of the things that, going back to the point, was in the campaigns that I've worked on, um, I don't think 
most people realize just how much work goes into a crowdfunding campaign. And it's not just having a great product, but it's it's the marketing and it's the awareness, right? It's it's really a marketing challenge in many ways, right? Um, how I imagine you probably had a lot of people when you were Indiegogo who had a great idea but didn't have the chops for that. And you don't want them to fail because you also want your platform to succeed. Like, how did you bridge that? How do you help to support people in doing that even if they don't necessarily have those kind of skills? Like, That was a big part of what I saw my role as and what Indiegogo right. sees its role as, where if you look at, we developed a whole help center, a whole guide, and we've also, since then, we've also partnered with Aero Electronics for people who are making more electronics-based right. products right. to be able to have that additional support to say, okay, because there's so, for those of you who don't know, that something that goes into like your phone or I'm like, I'm just looking around Jono's house right now. Right. Um, just the number of devices, the amount of components that goes into them and to get it at a price point that is, so if, it's, if a campaign is wildly successful, then that could sometimes be the worst thing for that product because right. they may be ready to, and I'm just gonna make up a number, but like they may have been prepared to make a thousand of something, but to make it on a scale where you have to make a hundred thousand of it, right. is like, then you have to start thinking about, do I need to, where do I make this? Like, what is my supply chain for this? It's so much different than putting something together in my basement um, right. in my free time. Um, I read that that's a pretty common thing, right? Is that particularly when people are building products for the first time and they're dealing with, you know, these original equipment manufacturers in China and places like that, that, that it blows up. And then that's one of the reasons why a lot of campaigns shit, because a lot, it seems like a lot of crowdfunding campaigns are late in terms of if you can hear a dog squeaking, that's our new puppy, everyone. Um, the, uh, it seems like a big reason for that is not that they're sitting around on their thumbs doing nothing. It's just there's external dependency. So it sounds like they're providing help with that. Try it. And, the, there are, and they also are hosting, hosting workshops and there's other online abilities. It, they would also have webinars with some of the campaign strategists to help think about the, the ins and outs of having a successful campaign. Right, right. So what I would also think is it, just for people who don't know, like right now I am anxiously awaiting. a. So I, during my time at Indiegogo, I think I backed over 400 campaigns. Like it was, wow. it got a little insane. <laughs> Um, now this I, your, was this your dirty little habit when you were there? Like you it, couldn't stop laying down cash in these cases. Because I would meet the I would meet the founders and the entrepreneurs. I was like, um, and I'm like, I vote with my dollars. I believe in you. I want this to succeed. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and luckily, I've been able to rein it in. Like I, <laughs> my husband, I, I don't think would would be as like he's like. I mean, we have a lot of gadgets and or like at one point we had four personal robots in our house. Wow, I was going to say your <laughs> living room must look like the Starship Enterprise with all these gadgets lying around. He's a very patient man. <laughs> <laughs> like the only, the only, right now the current robot in our oh I guess we have two. We have BB-8. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And from Spiro, and we have Anki's Vector. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but consumer hardware, it's tough. And, and that's what I think is also fascinating about crowdfunding is that it's giving a resurgence of, of more consumer hardware mm. where people, like, where it's more accessible for an entrepreneur um, because the democratization of, of components and being able to, there's so many 
resources out there where it's helping you to to navigate i'm just gonna say the supply chain or yeah. factories etc yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's so much it's in a much more accessible state now than it would have been even 10 years ago yeah wait kind of kind of going back to what i said earlier on about similarities with open source and with this kind of um, new approach to crowdfunding that we uh, to security that we're seeing with companies like hacker one what I love about crowdfunding as well is it gives people an opportunity to have a shot without having that backbone behind them, right? Like some of the, I know hundreds of people who've got thriving, successful careers and businesses who started out with not a lot of education, not a lot of support, and they just, they discovered open source and they had a go and, and, and they had, and, and they fed into a machine that could help them and it, and, and it, also their their enthusiasm and things like that so I, I agree with you like it's it's i think it's incredible and all of these things just seem to take time for people to figure out how to do it because it's not like this had really existed previously in history right this idea that you can do like democratizing funding right so how have you seen it change i mean how, when you look back on your time at indiegogo now and you look at crowdfunding today how do you think it's changed over the years back compared to let's say in 2000 and 13 or 2014. Well, I think that the like the campaign that we ran in 2011 mm. like it, it it would not raise any money now. I feel like the oh, really? there are certain expectations and again back to I would it, there are so many amazing tools available to us. So like when we shot our our crowdfunding video on a on a handheld camera mm. um my my co-founder Lindsay figured out how to use iMovie to edit it together right. and those tools are still there but they're better like you look at an iPhone X uh and it's it's, oh, it's incredible. amazing yeah. ca a, a camera on it and so i just feel like the tools that are available to people are so much better the the support and the resources are so much better mm. and you get to look and what one thing where people really figured out of what is like that video that people make for at least for the campaigns that are looking to make six figures like someone probably made that video and they probably spent a lot of money yeah. on that video it's um, it's incredible the amount you don't really realize how much work goes into those videos and how much money goes into them and so but what more and more people are realizing is that that is really a piece of lasting marketing collateral yeah and so being able to design it in a way where it can be multifunctional as opposed to just for that 30 day 30 to 60 day period when they're running in their campaign is a lot more impactful of yeah the, yeah no I think it's uh, it's it's interesting as well because one of the things I think there's been a change of, particularly in the last 10 years in companies, I've noticed this a lot with my clients, is a realization that not everything has to be super high production values. That there's something, there's something just real and authentic about someone taking a quick video on their iPhone or um, publishing a little bit of content that doesn't necessarily have all of the corporate look and brand and feel and things like that. And I feel like crowdfunding is, a, is an example of that. Like some of, the, some of the most successful campaigns, it seems, were kind of drawn together on the back of a napkin, but with people who had a good product and, and who just went for it, right? 
And I would even say it's that community supported level too. I, I feel like for small businesses, leveraging the power of crowdfunding is something powerful. Um, right. So the the example I always use is the Good Hot Bottle Shop in Oakland, California, right. ran a Indiegogo campaign. It was a it was a few years ago. I lived in Chicago at the time, and. Uh, I saw the campaign though, and they were giving you the ability to put your name on the back of the stool. And if you put your name on the back of the stool, anytime you went into the Good Hop bottle shop, you would actually be able to kick whoever was sitting in your stool out. (laughs) And they they sold them for $500. And so when you look, they, they put that perk at $500. And so when you look at that, like for me, I was like, I have to have it. Like the, oh. the ability to be able to kick somebody out of my stool, that's amazing. That is g- great for multiple different reasons. <laughs> exactly. And so now I see that as like, if you, if you look at it of that community building, that ability to bring people into your store. Like mm. I lived in Chicago. I visit, I, at the time I, I would be able to visit, but not enough to justify buying a $500 stool in <laughs> Oakland, but just that those bragging rights, like the, be able to be like, that's my stool. Right. Like you, if you go to like, you should go to the good hot bottle shop and find my stool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, or, and my name is on the floor in front of one of the, the fri- refrigerators there. Uh, and what was smart about that specifically from a crowdfunding perspective is that the margin is so high on that. Mm. So if it's something that's going to exist anyway, like there are going to be stools around the edge of the bar. Yeah. And so how can you lever? And what I loved about that perk was that, it's going to exist anyway, so why not be able to to leverage that and it, to to create those stools? You would have, I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't speak for them of how much it actually costs, but twenty five dollars for the plaque or something. Yeah, and then the margin on it is four hundred seventy five dollars for every, and there was they ended up selling or offering twelve of them as perks, and so when you look at the margin for that perk alone it's so high and so as you're thinking about what you can offer and and what opportunities you have for you for your small business or and i i really like supporting small businesses that's my favorite yeah totally um like for me i misfit cabaret is on kickstarter and they have this they just got fully funded i'm very proud of them what is misfit cabaret oh it's in it's so it's an amazing variety show that's in san francisco oh um it's very fun especially i always we love the christmas show that they do the last one we just went to one that was um, shoot, Indiana Jones themed and adventure themed. Really, it was really fun. That's so awesome. there's like, yeah. Um, and what were they just? What were they raising money for? Was it just to kind of run a show? Is it for the show itself? Correct. Right. Okay. And so, and like, what they're doing is they're pre-offer like offering pre-seats and or pre-seats to shows or to be able to offer VIP experiences. Or right. It's like, what do we have in our arsenal that we can offer that likely has a low margin? but high ability to get people excited about mm. what we're building and what we have built because they have this great fan base. That, it's interesting because we, we see a lot of like, you know, nerds, mm-hmm. tech firms, um, running campaigns. There's tons of gadgets, right, and crowdfunding sites. But what about those kind of like bars or restaurants or um, like I've not seen as much music. I mean, there is there is music on there, obviously, people who are doing that, but... Have that you mostly s- ends up on like Patreon. Right. That's kind of that was kind of what I was thinking. Do you feel like crowdfunding has kind of broke through? You know, there's that whole what's it called? You know, the whole uh, the adoption curve 
where you've got the early adopters and then you've got the laggards at the end. Do you feel like it's at a point now where it is accessible to a lot of businesses, the kind of businesses who aren't going to listen to this, who aren't necessarily going to know a lot about technology? I, it all, I mean, in my opinion, uh, one, there's a lot of different avenues now through, so Indiegogo really paved the way in helping other crowdfunding opportunities to rise and businesses to rise. Yeah, so yeah. if you look at something like, uh, okay, so I just recently went to BrewDog when I was in London. and BrewDog is amazing. It is amazing. And yes. so that's a community-supported brewery yep. um, that does equity crowdfunding. And so you get to own a little piece of BrewDog, and there's a there's a pride that comes with that. Oh, I didn't oh, know that they were community-supported. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, they're huge. It, like That's a huge selling point. They're, of, they're like all over the place now, right? Right, and a lot of it was, be, for example, when they entered into the U.S. market, um, they had their equity crowdfunding campaign for it. Right. Um, I heard, and I was in Berlin when I found out about it. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like this is amazing. Salt. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's it, it. There's a I it when you were looking at your crowdfunding options as a business, realizing what type of capital you're looking for. Um, and what is the best avenue to go about it now? Because I feel like, John, you asked me how it's changed. Hmm. It's that people have options. Right. And right. options are great. And also they're kind of awful. So right. it used to be like, oh, here, this is my one option, my one avenue. And now you're like, okay, well, do I do an equity crowdfunding campaign? Because then I need to give away equity. But at the same hand, I'm likely to raise higher numbers. Um or do I do a perk-based campaign, which is something like Indiegogo or Kickstarter, where you're offering something in exchange for a contribution? Right. And then there's something like Patreon, where you are, and typically that is more for creative endeavors, where yeah. you can have a certain level of support every month or yeah. yearly um, to provide an ongoing support. It's, it's a good point. There seems to be like a lot of options, and there is information out there for how to evaluate these options, but it's kind of disparate, right? It's not like there's a, the, at least that I'm aware of, there's no central place where you can say, okay, I am a creative person in some form. Either I want to build a device or I want to set up a brewery or I want to have a YouTube channel. What do I, not just which of my options do I choose, but how do I go about doing that? Like it kind of leads a little bit onto the tech star side of things how have you seen in your mind that kind of dividing line between the kind of um, grubby faced, you know, do it yourself kind of let's go and do a crowdfunding campaign and just make this work. And then the more traditional, we want to go through the venture capital route or want to go through, a, um, you know, a seed accelerator like Techstars or through Y Combinator or whatever. How have you seen that? Where do you see the dividing line there? Yeah. Uh, for, so with Techstars, Techstars is the worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. Yeah. And for them, for in a, for Techstars, for us, uh, it's funny. I'm like, where am I? I know. Hat? I was going to say this is this is going to be psychologically weird for you because you keep dividing. You, yeah. yeah. Um, so for Techstars, where our mission is and and how the company was founded was just running a business is hard and there's a lot of things that you don't know and um mm. our founders David and David when they started there that was the premise that it started where 
it's like, man, we've we've run and started a few businesses, and we've made a lot of mistakes around the along the way. If only we could help people to avoid those mistakes. Right. And so, TechStars is broken down into a few different ways to tap into that entrepreneurial growth. Right. So one, they have startup. We have startup weeks and startup weekends where people who are more casually interested can get resources and inspiration. So or, do you have like other entrepreneurs speaking at those things? And correct. Like fireside chats and all that kind of stuff and it's typically so for a a startup week it's it's typically hosted by a group of volunteers that are really passionate about about supporting entrepreneurship in their community um and then for a startup weekend that is more about you build a company over the course of a weekend oh cool those are all and both both the the startup weeks and startup weekends are all across the world all across the globe uh, and typically they have different themes. So there was one recently in New York that was focused specifically on financial inclusion of like, let's create tools to support more financial inclusion. What, what is financial? What do you mean by financial inclusion? So for people who the, the bank, the underserved for people who oh, may see. not have access to tra- traditional capital. Got it. Of, right. OK, so it's making funds available to, you know, more people. Exactly. And particularly probably people who don't have access to, who can't just necessarily go and get a big loan or right. go who, to a venture fund or whatever. Who maybe so. have to get a payday loan. Right, um, right. And of, that can get really expensive. Yeah. And what are ways that we can, again, even in a different way, democratize access to capital? Where yeah. Where it, as a, like I, I grew up, not, uh, I grew up, not well off and I right. um there's I've been under the poverty line twice in my life like once in 2012 in San Francisco so it's it's when you are in that stage where you're like man I need to go to like get a payday loan yeah, like, yeah. this is real and those um, those are the like I think feel like people in those positions are the people who get screwed right because that's the, the like fees it, are so high yeah. and like and and often it's an act of desperation it's like I need to pay my rent I right. need to eat you know, as opposed to I need to set up a new business. Right. <laughs> so, so it's it's just been interesting. Uh, like, and that's what makes me so happy about working at TechStars is I feel like we are empowering more people to solve more problems and right. to create businesses that support more of of the the problems and the opportunities that are in the world. Uh, that's and great. With our accelerator programs, those are typically a three-month program, and we have 45 programs around the globe. And then what my role is specifically, I'm on our corporate innovation team. My role is a senior network engagement manager, so I work with our all of our corporate partners, typically Fortune 100 companies, right. and who are looking to innovate, and they're looking to innovate in tandem with our portfolio companies. So I'm a matchmaker between our corporate partners and our startups to oh, I see. help them help our corporates advance their innovation goals and to help our startups to get more corporate clients. So what you, the corporate? What did you say? Company startup. Uh, sponsors is it did you say so like if uh, how does that work like is it is it is this primarily people who've got cash or is it some other function that they provide like what are you connecting the startup to i guess totally so for our corporate partners our corporate partners partners that's the word i was looking yeah. for <laughs> oh i got you um, so our corporate partners are looking to do things like 
um, just making up a, a they're one of their businesses. Typically, it's the innovation team that we're working with, and the innovation team is working with their business units internally. So we'll just make it up. The HR team is right. looking for a tool that will better help to look at payroll. Oh, and I see. So companies may come to you and say, "We're looking for these things to improve our business," exactly. and then you may have portfolio companies. And I'm like, "Oh." I know exactly I can who hook you should up. talk with. So you're a dating agency. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and the, the corporate partner typically is like, they're looking for either, uh, they're looking for deal flow in the way of either running pilots with these startups, or they're looking to invest in the startups, or they're looking to acquire the startups. Right. And so, but a lot of times, again, it keeps coming back to access and democratizing access. So I'm helping to create those those opportunities for access, both from the corporate partner side and from the entrepreneur side, where a lot of times for an entrepreneur, and, and that's why they come to Techstars, it's like, I just need help and I need some resources and I need support and I need mentorship. And so that's what I'm helping to provide is, right. oh, here, it's just knowing who to talk to in a big corporate partner because they are thousands of people across many offices typically. And you're like, who's the needle in the haystack of the one person who I should have been talking to? That's I'm great. Like, I got you. That's got to be <laughs> so handy for, for, for some of those startups. Yeah, when you, when you mentioned earlier on about... Um, you know, not necessarily coming from a wealthy background. And I have a, uh, um, a lot of, I feel you on that front because, um, you know, when I was growing up, my parents and I, we lived in what we call council houses in the UK, which is kind of, I guess you could say the projects in the US. Um, and then my, my dad's career started progressing forward and we moved into our own house. Um, but did not come from a background that is, did not come from the San Francisco, background where your parents have a pool and uh, you go and study computer science and you know all of these opportunities are there and obviously people who were born in the Bay Area don't necessarily have it easy right um, but it seems to me that it's relatively unspoken that a lot of people who are starting companies a lot of people who are joining companies don't necessarily come from this cookie cutter life that we think of as Silicon Valley that it really is a really broad range of backgrounds. And I think a lot of the discussion that we've been seeing in recent years around like diversity has shed the light on that a little bit more. Um, are you seeing that discussion kind of coming out into the open a little bit more? Because like, I'll give you an example. A few, a few months ago, I think it was, Eric and I were at a conference and there was a session and a lot of the session was, you know, breaking through the just the reality of running a business that you, you don't always know what you're doing. You don't have access to funds that being a founder means that you don't pull a, a large salary by any stretch that you're, everything's wrapped up in equity, people struggling to eat sometimes. And a lot of this isn't talked about. We just see the, 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 the affluent lifestyle of, of successful Silicon Valley businesses. So what are you seeing in that regard with Techstars? Is, is, is that message becoming a little bit more prevalent now? Do you think that those conversations becoming more, out in the open. And one thing with Techstars is that with when you are in one of the accelerator programs, you are also working with an MD, a managing director, a program manager, right. where you're able to have these candid, very open conversations with them and real conversations about here, how, how do I handle X? How do I, like, I'm not going to make payroll this month. I don't, I don't know what, right. I'm going to assume none of our Techstars companies have had to do that. But right. in, for, 
for times when you need help and you need resources, that's the exact reason why Techstars was created. And then back to other ways that I feel like there are, so and for how we are thinking about specifically how do you, not everybody has the, I'll call it privilege to be able to enter into a three month program where you go to like Lisbon and enter into yeah. a program that's going to be perfect for you. Uh, so we have a program called Techstars Anywhere where anybody, it's a virtual program. Anybody can participate from anywhere in the world. And that's oh, cool. really been really helpful because um, specifically a lot of time, and I, I might be speaking a little bit out of term, but if you look at at the people who are in accelerators, a lot of times for women, like they're the ones who have a family or they, they're the ones yeah. that are taking in. So when you, when you offer them the ability to be able to continue to participate by while still living at home and not having to necessarily uproot their lives and oh, yeah. a city in three, 300,000 miles, away, that's too many miles, many right. miles away, right. um, that it really helps them huge, right? to have it more accessible. Well, the thing is as well is, I, I can't remember who said this, I read somewhere recently, but someone was saying that, you know, sure, like the guys are in families, but women, even if they're like at work, there's there's kind of a biological pressure like to be back at home more because you, you know, you, <laughs> you gave birth to this child. So I think women are just under probably a lot more stress than guys, you know, even if you have a both parents working that kind of thing. So that's gotta be enormously helpful. Um, and again, for people who can't travel as much, right. Or totally. for disabled people. Or uh, someone who's looking after their parents or right. there's a multitude. That's cool. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So is, is Techstars like, Erica's company, my wife, Erica, went through Y Combinator. How is it different or similar to Y Combinator? Because, you know, one thing that she said was the Y Combinator experience was really um, a really good experience for them. You know, they they learned a lot. They got some pretty tough life lessons told to them, uh, which, which is what they wanted. And that since they went through their batch, um, they've always had, like, been able to tap into the network there. They're... They've still got access. There's, uh, there's a lot of value still for them long afterwards. And they feel, felt like the the investment that you have to place in Y Combinator was more than worth it. So how is it different with Techstars or? Well, that's good. I'm like, I don't know Y Combinator as well, but for Techstars, uh, we also have Techstars for Life. That's one of our our core tenants of Techstars right. is that once you are in, you are in. Right. And so you know, years later, if you have a question, being able to reach out to Techstars team members, whether that be your MD, who is the managing director for your program or, or more. Uh, also that for Techstars, it's, it's global. So there are offices across the globe and they're focusing on, and for example, looking at the BSH smart home accelerator is in Munich or oh, there's see. a sustainability program that is in, um, or in, Boulder, Denver, in Colorado, <laughs> and that one's in in partnership with the Nature Conservancy, or Western Union has an accelerator that's in Denver. So being able to to have access in different parts of the world, um, or there's a shipping accelerator that is in. Oh man, I should, why did I bring up the one that? It, but it, it is in. It's in. Should APAC. we just insert some audio at this point? <laughs> That's an APAC. Um, right. But so again, just being able to point to the global 
reach of the Techstars network and also Techstars for Life, where you are able to tap into a smart, really well-networked team of people across right. the globe. It makes it Please tell difference. me someone has had Techstars for Life tattooed on their back. I, I don't know. I hope so. That's got, I mean, that is ripe for... We have, I'm like, I could have showed you my, show you my hat, but we have um, Give First is one of the main tenants of Techstars is that Give First and then it, and create that great karma. Right. Um, and so that is a very important value for Techstars. And I'm sure that at least one person has that attitude too. We have lots of swag. Like um, Jeremy Shore from SV, uh, Silicon Valley Bank has shoes with Give First on it. Oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so big. I didn't realize it was so spread over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming if you're based in one of these locations, you have access to the broad network, right? Correct. Which has got to be hugely helpful for businesses in terms of expansion. So Correct. That's awesome. So. What is it about this? I mean, the one thing I think is interesting about your story here is you've always, like, I think anyone listening to this is there's a common theme of democratization of access, right? Of, um, it seems like you feel like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you feel (laughs) like people should have access to information, to capital, to be able to turn their ideas into reality. And I don't think anybody would ever disagree with that. Um, but not everybody is willing to dedicate their career to doing that. What is it about this that you're so passionate about? You know, what? It's access, it's democratizing access of, of re, uh, specifically resources. I feel like, again, when I first started my career, um, I was so, I, I just didn't know how to get started. Yeah. I was like, how, uh, I just t- remember being scary, so right? scared. Like, yeah. I just, that fear of like, oh my gosh, what, like, I was even scared to move. Right. I was like, do I move? I, again, I was living in Chicago. I'm from Western Illinois. And I was like, maybe I'll move to Madison, Wisconsin. I was like, oh my gosh, it's too scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. But where, if I were to be able to tap into a network to say, oh, here, don't worry. Like, this is a great moving company or here is a great, um, like apartment that my friend is renting out for the summer. Just the, again, and this is more, I feel like what social media has been able to allow us is being able to tap into professional groups and to be able to put those, Mm. those asks out there, but it's that art of, or the ability to have answers to questions that you just, you don't even know where to start. Like yeah. I remember when we were starting the Kanban, it was like, where do we even start to to get this off the, like we have this great idea, now what? Yeah. Uh, and we were in business school at the time. We're like, okay, so we need capital, we need legal, we need X, Y, Z. We're like, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. And that's why I really love something like one for Indiegogo, it was pretty easy to be like, okay, we need to put together a story. Right. And then we need to be able to tell that story. And then we're already going to be connecting with potential clients yeah. because potential clients would be the ones that would be most interested in this coming to life. So it's like, oh, hey, like, I'm just going to use it as an example, the Craft Brewers Association. Hey, Craft Brewers Association, have you seen our campaign? And then it's getting the right people talking about the right, you at the right time. Yeah, yeah. And it's be able to create that buzz and to leverage it more as, again, a piece of lasting marketing collateral rather than something that is 
that is for that 30 to 60 day period. And then for something like Techstars, it's that it just, it is so scary to get started and it's so scary to grow also. Because then you're like, the problem, the little problems you had when you started, like, which were huge of, I have, I took a year of sweat equity. Um, I ended up, you know, below the poverty line in San Francisco, having to go to healthy SF to get, and they told me, congratulations, you're below the poverty line. So your healthcare is free. I was like, I have an MBA and four jobs. This was one of the worst moments of my life. That's just (laughs) so crazy. Like that we can be in that position. I mean, just, well, that's a whole separate thing, isn't it? About San Francisco and... But it would be any, because it's, it's that, as you were mentioning before, that struggle of, like, if you don't have wealthy parents, if you don't have, right. um, if you don't have a net, how do you take the leap? And the thing is, as well, is every decision you make is enormously consequential, right? If you don't have, if you've got, if you've got, if you've got three pieces you can move forward in terms of decisions, every piece has got to make it, um, Otherwise, you're 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 going to be struggling, right? And I think that's the other thing is if you've got a whole load of of capital and resources available, then it's you can take a risk. And the other thing that strikes me is, at least from my experience as well, was just the questioning yourself about whether you're making the right choices. You know, like is should I do this, and is this the right decision where I am right now? And just having access to people who can say, yeah. Like uh, I, I wrestle with this all the time, even today, just, am I using my time as wisely as I can? And uh, you just don't know sometimes. So, and that's really hard in your, in, in the beginning stages of your career. And what I would also say is to like, it's about prioritization too. And this is something that I've learned later now as in my career right. of, it's not about as much about asking, am I doing the right thing, but about um, how should I be prioritizing? Right. It's like having somebody else be able to tell me because so a lot of times we're working with companies that are, I'm going to use the word disrupt, but that are changing the industry in some way. Right. And so it's something that's never been done before. Like what Indiegogo is doing, never been done before. Right. Techstars is a pioneer in the accelerator yeah. space, but where you can't ask somebody to give you the blueprint to something that's never been done before. So it's more about you are really smart. You've built a lot of businesses. Yeah. Here are the like four things that we can pursue right now. We're thinking about X. Like, can you just walk us through, like be a sounding board to help us come up with a strategy of how we approach this? Because if we do X, then we won't have the capacity to do Y or Z. Right. And that is, for me, has been incredibly helpful of, of thinking about instead of saying like, hey, tell me if I'm doing this right, to be like, here is how I'm thinking of doing this. Oh, I see. And I like see. asking for, because no one's going to, no one's done it before. Yeah. And so. Yeah, that's, I, that's a good point. You know, with, with, with established art forms or industries, it's easier to be able to ask that question and say, you know, am I on the right track? But if this is brand new. You just kind of got to go for it. Right. And it's like, Hey, okay. Have you thought about your, I'm just making it up, but like, um, you're starting your business. Should I prioritize hiring my first marketing person or should I prioritize hiring a strategy person or something right. like that? Um, 
<laughs> and having somebody be able to walk you through, here are the pros and cons of this. Yeah. And so you can make a more informed decision because at the end of the day, it's your business. It's nobody else's business. Yeah. So you need to make the decision that's right for you. And I feel like if having an approach, again, where you aren't looking for someone to give you the answer, you're looking for somebody to help guide you, yeah. is a, it's a nuance but important distinction. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you're kind of philosophy here or your driving force here is that when you're exposed to more information and more people mentoring, then by definition you get better, which I would complete, completely agree with. Like to me, this is the real power of, of what we're seeing with communities and with the fact that we're so connected now. I think we're seeing this, especially in, in um, developing nations as well and with innovation programs that are going on there that where they can get plugged into just a wealth of content information. But this begs a, a, a problem, right? Is that you can then be just overwhelmed by information. There's so much out there. How do you think we bridge that? You know, because... You find people you trust. You find right. the resources. Do, do you, you feel trust. like the human... Do you feel like it's it's the... Do you feel like the library of information is more or less important than the librarian who's facilitating that information or, or who's got the experience? Because it's a bit of both, right? But right. And it's it's really your, it's, nothing's, it won't be the same for anybody. Well, yeah. it'll probably be similar for people, but it's based on your experience about your comfort level with risk, about your um, yeah. ability to make sound decision, like yeah. quick decisions. Or even being open to counsel. Because I can exactly. imagine a lot of people, if you're really nervous and <laughs> a little bit uh, maybe insecure about, about this, then sometimes it can be nerve wracking to kind of reach out to someone and say, Hey, I'd like some help, please. Um, I'd like some guidance or just ideas. So, um, and I would say that's also one of the key differentiators or, or ways that Techstars is, is leading the way is because it's a mentorship driven accelerator. Yeah. So that is at the forefront and the center of, of cool. the approach of our accelerators where it's, it's mentorship. You, we have mentor madness where you get to really select the mentors who are going to be most impactful for mental your madness. Mm -hmm. You really know how to come up with good names. Oh yeah. Techstars, <laughs> Techstars for life. Mental yeah. madness. Now I can't let you go without talking about beer. Okay. Because the one thing you've mentioned a few times has been brewing and craft, uh, craft, or craft beer, I'm guessing, right? Mm -hmm. it, are you um, guessing you're a beer fan? Is that right? Correct. Is that part of the driving force behind this is that you like beer or is he just interested in brewing? I was like, can I tell you the story of how I met my husband? I'd love to, yeah. <laughs> so I had moved from San Francisco back to Chicago at the end of 2014, early 2015. Right. And um, I went to meet one of my friends from undergrad. She invited me to come watch a basketball game with her. And I ended up sitting across at the bar from who it's her brother, but I didn't know that at the time. And I was like, he ordered a canned beer. Um, he and, and, uh, I was like, why did you order a canned beer? That's so weird. Right. He's like, oh, cans are so much better for beer for X, Y, Z reason, because they don't let light in because of, oh. uh, and I was like, are you messing with me right now? He's like, why would I be messing with you? I was like, do you know I own a mobile beer canning service? He's like, no, that's awesome. No, let's get married. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so then, and now we're married. <laughs> that's great. So beer brought you together. Mm -hmm. oh. You see, when I say to people, beer brings people together, they always look at me and sneer with that comment, but this actually happened. There you go. What's your, uh, what do you like to drink? What's your favorite kind of beer? Uh, I usually, and it's, 
I usually go for sours or milk stouts. Oh, I know some I people. Okay, good. Yeah, it's like some people. Uh, I've said that before, and um, it has not gone over well with really with some of some people who don't consider like they're more super into IPAs, right. etc. They don't consider sours a real beer. Is that kind of? It, it, I don't even. I don't. I can't say why they were, but they're like, oh. Oh really? <laughs> I was like, they're amazing. Um, oh, sour beer is is. I just think it's. I mean, but I like so really good. intense flavors. Like I love spicy food and things like that. But I haven't really been able to get into the stouts as much. I feel like okay. you know, you know, the drinks you have to slice first before you can drink it. It's too heavy for me. Um, yeah. Have you ever tried Calicraft beer? Maybe. They're based out of Walnut Creek, which oh, is nice. where we are right now. Yeah. Um, awesome brewery. What's cool about it is they have a, um, they basically, um, their location where they brew is in like a, it's in a, uh, an industrial estate. So there's, you know, Del Monte nearby and all of these just regular businesses. And what they did is they set up this place, they have a bar there, and then there's a ton of wooden tables out the front and they have food trucks and people bring their kids there and their dogs there. And it's, it's awesome. And I've been noticing more and more of these like little breweries popping up where you just kind of go down with your family and hang out. And if it's sunny outside, it's, it's fantastic. And these seem to be cropping up everywhere. So you should check them out. And it's, it's, I, I remember when I first, so none of my co-founders or I had a specific background in craft beer when we started right um it's developed over time and now i would say my co-founders lindsey harima and jen coyle are like premier you go to a conference a beer conference and you will know oh really they're like rock stars in the beer world and 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 it's they are because again it's that access for for specifically for what the can van does it's it's access without the can van like you go in we roll off our micro canning line onto off of the 10 foot horse trailer up directly to a bright tank and then can the beer on site put the labels on package it and then we drive away and we never take ownership of that beer oh and it's because for a a brewery is specifically we we service the bay area we're based out of sacramento right but we are able to through this um if, if a, for a brewery they'd be able to can maybe one to two days a month if they're working at capacity just from right. supply etc but then you would have to buy 10,000 cans and that's the minimum order of cans you can buy yeah and then you would have to have the space to store the cans the canning line um the capital to be able to buy that canning oh, line okay. um the staff that's trained in order to do that really well which it's a science yeah so yeah. it's us again access access to that resource um when we started the sharing economy was really big. Right, right. Uh, back in again 2011, and but we hadn't heard of anything in the B two B space of the sharing economy at that point. And so we're like, oh, we're we're a B two B sharing economy <laughs> company. We would never say that now, but at the time, it was it was that access and that ability where to make it possible for a small medium sized brewery that wouldn't have necessarily a a consumer product to be able to share outside of a keg right. and to make it possible to be in the homes of anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like, awesome. Yeah. I... Devil's Canyon in Belmont was our first 
client. We we were housed there for a long time. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I had no idea about this. I kind of wish we talked about this earlier on. I could talk for half an hour about your <laughs> canning company. Um, please tell me your your you've you've got. To, um, please tell me that your motto has got to be yes, we can. I was like, I. It's got to be that. There's. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was trademarked. I think that somebody, like, because I think that's what we started with. Right. Um, but I think it might be trademarked. Well, given the heritage of great naming that we've been talking about, it makes sense. So, well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming. I really thank appreciate it. So I always enjoy talking to you. You've always got so many interesting things to say, and you're just a blast to hang out with. So, thank you for coming on. Same. Thank you. Thank you.